Welcome to The Virtual Shift, a show looking at the seismic changes happening in healthcare with virtual care at the epicenter. Join me and my guests as we look at key cultural and policy shifts impacting how providers, payers, and patients connect, as well as how care is being reimagined both for today and the future. Hello, and thanks for tuning in today. I'm your host, Tom Foley. You can learn more about this show by visiting the program on healthcarenowradio.com, and be sure to follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, at FoleyTom, and the hashtag, The Virtual Shift. Uh, We have a great guest on today, Nicole Bradbury. She is the founder and CEO of Flacos, the Florida ACO uh, organization. Nicole, welcome to the program. Thanks. Nice. Thanks for having me. Awesome. I appreciate you taking the time to to talk with the audience. So you are a underachiever. You are a health uh, entrepreneur. You're involved in uh, value-based care strategy, an investor, operating partner, board member. You are in it in the context of innovation and pushing the market forward i think you need to do a little bit more frankly no. <laughs> but but i uh, i always appreciate uh, attending the flacco's conference to me yes it is a smaller conference but to me it's one of the most educational conferences you can go to because you can network people are there to help teach as well as it just engage in how do we move this healthcare market forward. So I just want to applaud you on your efforts uh, for uh, Flacco's. I think it's got a unique vibe and that it is really people that come together to to push value-based healthcare in the absence of fee-for-service. So it's really not about being competitive with each other. It's in being competitive against the old model of fee-for-service. Yeah, I hear you. And we're going to talk about both of those models in a bit. So tell us a little bit about Flacco's just in general so folks have a perspective. Yeah, we've been doing Flacco's for about 10 years. It started really right after the Affordable Care Act came out with the MSSP ACO model. And we thought, you know, this is such a new model. It's a a emerging space. And how do we get everybody together so that we can collaborate versus um, compete in uh, this new, what we're now calling value-based healthcare at the time, it was accountable care. And, you know, it just kind of took off. It's, you know, Florida is the most successful market in the country around these ACOs and value-based care models. A lot of that's because it's led by independent entrepreneurial docs and doesn't have some of the disincentives in other markets. But Florida uniquely, you know, has been successful. But they, I think also they've, they've done a really good job collaborating and partnering. And I think a lot of that has to do with Flacco's and bringing everybody together early on. And so every year it goes a little bit bigger. Um, we bring folks from all over the country to you know, help us be better, and as well as we have all the experts in Florida that are on our panels and and continue to grow. And interesting enough, we're looking to build a Texco in Texas later this year and have a, our first event there too. So I think it's there's oh, awesome. a need for kind of state-based advocacy collaboration type models, and so we're we're going to experiment with number two in Texas. So yeah, awesome. This market seems to be continuing to transition in many ways, uh, certainly with the, with the start of ACOs, and we still have 1.1 million providers that are still in this fee-for-service model. CMS established this objective to have all Medicare providers in a, that are in a fee-for-service model into a risk-oriented contract by 2030. To me, that's going to spell a lot of uh, transformation in how do these providers get comfortable with a risk-oriented model. I, I, I'm curious from your opinion uh, on how that 
effort uh, impacts in a positive way or a negative way the ACO organization, if, if you will? Yeah, I mean, I, I would guess that 1.1 million, what's the total number of, of- of physicians in the country, do you know? I don't, I don't know. I, I hear different numbers, but uh, the stat was 1.1 that are in a fee-for-service model today. Yeah, because my guess is that they're probably still doing fee-for-service, but they're also in some kind of ACO or risk or shared savings model. Because, you know, we have, um, uh, you know, half a million that are in ACOs, the, the Medicare fee-for-service ACOs. We also have, I would say, the providers in MA those models are emerging. So I would say that, that those are risk-bearing or they're taking some kind of risk in those. So I'm guessing there's a lot fewer that are exclusively fee-for-service than we think. You know, They're still doing fee-for-service, but they're also experimenting with some kind of version of a model, either a commercial yeah. payer model or AC, Medicare, or, you know, et cetera. Wouldn't you think that those uh, individuals, that uh, providers that are in a fee-for-service model today, not in any ACO, would have to join an ACO. I, I I don't see an independent provider being able to take on risk because their patient base typically will see more than one provider in and of itself. So it to me it would sound like it needs to be an organizational focus on that patient, not an individual provider focus on a yeah. Just patient. to take risk, you need you know this, you need numbers, right? And so right. the the AC the MSSP ACO model requires five thousand you know, just to get that bell curve to, to make a risk model work. You know, they've got some of the reach models that go less than that, but um, they're kind of more experiments with the plan to grow. So my guess is, um, I just think there's fewer that are out there that are in maybe in the middle of the country, but as you go to Florida and Texas and California and the Northeast, I would say most physicians would are, are in some kind of model and maybe the exceptions are the more rural areas, but, um, and they, and, and there's so many incentives to do it because you get credit for your meaningful use. You get credit for your MIPS. If you're in one of these models, otherwise you got to do it yourself. And, um, it, you know, just the, the, the work to do that says, why not be in one of these models? And then for primary care, you can almost double your income by participating and successful ACO because and and there's no other place for them to do that, you know, and I think those docs that feel like they're on a hamster wheel participate in these models. And so if they're not in it, it's because they're either nearing retirement and they just don't want to do something new, is my guess with maybe some rural exceptions. So I, I think this path to value that started in 2012, I think every year more and more and more participants are there and we know that it works. Um, you know, 51% of Medicare patients are in an MA plan, the other 49 are in a um, MSFP, and I would say more than half of those are in some kind of ACO. And just the, the numbers of patients that are involved tells you the number of providers that must be involved. So from an ACO perspective, what would you say, uh, not from an organizational perspective, but from the delivery of care mechanisms in order to achieve value, what, what would you say that are like the top two pinnacle efforts that make an ACO an ACO, if you will? Well, I think the number one thing is analytics, right? Because think about doctors, they're, they're so busy every day and they probably, 99% of them still, even if they're part of an ACO, see the patients that present in front of them, see the patients that call them. And so what an ACO does, it takes all this data and it says, okay, here's our population of patients. 
let me analyze them to think when which which of them should come in to see the doctor at what cadence. You know, my unmanaged cardiac patients should probably come in every three months. My ones that are on six or more drugs, let's get them in for an evaluation. So the ACO does all that upfront analytics and then even provides support. Either they, you know, let the doctor and their staff know what patients need to come in or they will actually sometimes put call centers in place and, and get the patients into the practice. And then the doc gets to do what he does. And typically docs do the right thing. What they don't do is outreach and proactively go out to, to patients who need to come in. So I think analytics is a is the number one thing that analytics, I mean, that um, ACOs do. And then number two is all of that support. You know, do, do we help them with the outreach to get patients in? Do we you know, provide some care management to provide some care coordination in addition to the staff that the doctors have. And so I think those are the two probably biggest things. Where do you find uh, patient engagement in that ecosystem and the importance of that? So the reason value-based healthcare exists is because of patient engagement. So the payers who tried to do it through utilization management, disease management, failed, not because they didn't have sophisticated programs, not because they didn't have smart people and, and great ways to think about it, but the fact that they could never get past the 10, 11, 12% engagement. And so in order to change that shift and really, you know, because they, they cared about bringing the cost of care down because of lots of reasons, mostly because of market share loss, people couldn't afford insurance anymore. But anyway, they, you know, delegated what we call medical cost management. So you have two things within insurance. You have the um insurance risk that actuaries worry about and you have medical cost management. The difference is the person that steps off the curb and get hits by a car versus the person who has unmanaged diabetes, right? Only the providers can really manage that unmanaged diabetes. Payers tried, but they could never hurdle that 12% engagement. And so just by shifting that to the providers and to ACOs, we've got an average about 50% engagement, which is huge, 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 huge. And also these doctors touch their patients, hopefully at least once a year, whereas the payers are all doing this predictive analytics to try to just get to five or 10% of the max, you know, and, and see what they can do. And so it's just a whole different game, but engagement is the reason. And you have to engage patients in order to shift cost and quality. Oh, I absolutely, I, I'm a believer that every patient is on this, what I refer to as the awareness to wellness continuum. And patient engagement uh, increases awareness uh, outside. Uh, you know, you might have gone to your doctor and now you're aware you're a diabetic. And so how do I fix that? So education, the engagement raises uh, education, raises, raises uh, behavioral change and, all, you know, forward motion towards uh, a better path to wellness. I'm a believer that and I have a big background in, in, in diabetes with my father, but well, there's, uh, there's a great saying: patient engagement is the next blockbuster drug, right? It's, it's, yeah, exactly. It's powerful I, as literature I agree. was engagement. Yeah. I, I'm with you 100. percent You know, 70 uh, percent of all uh, chronic conditions are based on behaviors, yeah. right? So at the end of the day, patient, you need patient engagement. Uh, so the story with my father, uh, my audience well knows, is uh, he was uh, obese. Uh, he had dialysis at home, you know, and he just never listened to his doctors, right? Even though he went twice a year or three right. times a year. But in, at the end, and diabetes doesn't hurt. So if it doesn't hurt, I ain't doing anything, right? That's the, some of the attitudes, all right? But in the last five years, you lost one leg, second leg. 
an arm and two fingers. So diabetes will hurt. And then there's this transformation of the home. Dining room becomes a bedroom, add a second downstairs bathroom. I always said my mother was lucky she had six kids because she had six additional caregivers uh, to help in, in, in that he's context. Lucky. He's lucky, yeah. <laughs> he's lucky, he was lucky. So where, where do you think services like remote monitoring and chronic care management and things like that, therapeutic monitoring, where do you think that plays a role in patient engagement and ultimately uh, the success of an ACL? Well, I kind of see them as a bridge. You know, you had the old fee-for-service models and you have the whole full-risk models. Under full-risk, they should be doing all that stuff because they know it moves the needle. Well, they couldn't quite get physicians to move from one to the, to the other without some kind of bridge. And the bridge were what I call these value CPT codes that rewarded the behavior that is needed to take on risk and take on medical cost management. And so they had to figure out a mechanism in the old fee-for-service world to pay for these new activities that doctors weren't doing. And that's what those codes are. You've got AWV, you've got CCM, you've got RPM, and there's a whole slew of them that have come out. But they really reward that. They pay for that behavior that we know moves the needle on the back end for cost and quality. And so as you shift all the way to at-risk models, you shouldn't need them anymore because all of those behaviors should already be incorporated in in the, the risk dollars. But, you know, RPM is just a way to get intel real time when patients are at home. I mean, you need that, right? You can't wait yeah. for that twice a year visit to figure out what's going on with patients who have severe chronic exactly. disease. And so, you know, they play a, a very valuable role, but how do you get doctors to start using them is really where I say these codes that came in are, are the bridge. So. No, I, I agree it is the bridge. And I if, if a provider that needs to move to value, uh, to me, you mentioned it earlier, Provider today, they say, hey, you know, in my practice, I need to make more money uh, in 2024 and their fee-for-service model. The natural reaction is to trade faster on the on the hamster wheel. I hate to say it that way, but the, that's the truth, right? So yeah. uh, on, on the flip side of that, the, to get the experience and understand how – what risk they can take and they or they can't take is these value-based – these virtual – these virtual programs – remote monitoring, chronic care management, you named them, they provide that intel. It's right. all about the data, right? So yeah. I am, and, and, and I agree, once, they, once they, are, you know, they have patients on there for one, two years, they now understand how to get to, how to manage risk because they have the data to support them. Exactly. Your point, analytics is key, right? They had the incentive. But, to, to do things they wouldn't normally do without that incentive, which gave them data that they didn't have before that shows them how successful they are. And it's just a pathway kind of to taking risk and being successful in risk models. So, yeah, and are all so, the right things. So what, what can we do more to educate physicians on this pathway? Because I, to some degree, Florida might be different because there is Flacco and they do a great job, as I said. But Educating the physician on this path to value, I don't think that there's a national strategy, if you will. The objective is everybody's on risk-oriented contracts by 2030, but we don't have a – I don't know if we have a unified strategy. Well, I think, I think I would follow the incentives. You know, I think that, you know, the reason Florida is so successful is you did have an MA kind of market there that 
was used to a little bit of risk, but you also had all these independent entrepreneurial doctors that didn't have all the disincentives that exist within the hospital system. You know, does the hospital really want to reduce hospitalizations, which is the number one area to find cost savings? And it's actually better quality if a patient's not in the hospital. And so if you go market by market by market, you'll see the difference is when you have a, a very strong hospital market. I'm not digging hospitals, but but no, you have, I know you're not. They're just the incentives, you know, it's kind of the yeah. system, you know, not the people that are part of it. But um, in those markets that are led heavily by by hospitals, they might have put their toe in the ACO and the value-based healthcare world. But at the end of the day, their physician health organizations aren't incented the same way. They're incented for leakage, not for moving the needle down. And so until you can right-size all those incentives, you're not going to get the embrace that you have like in Florida and some other markets for value-based healthcare because the money isn't trickling down. And I hate to say it, but, you know, doctors run small businesses. And so at the end of the day, you have to align the incentives. That's why we have a hamster wheel is because the incentives for fees per service is do more, do more, do more. Value-based healthcare is do the right stuff and probably do less. And so you have to move those incentives to get people to really change. And so the markets that right-size them, like Florida, versus the markets that don't, and there's many of them, I think are lagging behind. And you can see it just in the success on the overarching savings numbers. And then you have this whole swath of the country that I think, you know, it's just getting there. They're just late to adopt it, but it's but it's happening because at the end of the day, when we started down this path in 2012, 2013, I'd say the hospitals had about 80%, and don't quote me on that number, but a big, large chunk of the of the pie of, of cost, I mean, of dollars that went to the health system, you know, health provider system. And so as you're seeing these risk models and markets be more successful, that pie is is switching and rewarding more of this upfront care, this proactive preventive care. And that's the way it should go. But, you know, if you have lots of strong, you know, forces in the marketplace that are keeping that from happening, it's just going to take longer. Yeah, that, that's fair. I mean, and and I think one of the challenges that hospitals have, and, and I'm not digging them either. I I'm I'm all interested in how do we get everybody to move together as opposed to individually, because we can create a much greater inertia where everybody wins if we're moving it together. But a hospital needs to because they operate on very very thin margins, as you know. So mm-hmm. any incentives that they have have to cover their financial risk as they move, right? So right now they they love high utilization of bed count because that's what makes them money. So t- the idea that, hey, I don't want to have a high utilization of bed count, I need to make sure my financials are still stable, right? Because if you don't come into my hospital, I don't necessarily make a lot of money. It's the ambulatory side of the equation. And, and there's such somebody. a great story there. If you move dollar one to the physician health organization and look at the hospital as an operating cost, it's just a completely different perspective. And But they're not doing that because revenue one is when they fill a bed. But if you move it back, then all of a sudden ACOs and value-based healthcare make sense, you know? And so it's really a total shift in how they perceive their revenue and what then becomes a cost. You have all these hospital buildings. We probably have too many in this country. And maybe, you know, as our growing aging population, we think about using that real estate for long-term care and things like that, that we know we need. And it's just a shift in the business model that has to happen. And, you know, when I was consulting with hospital execs, you know, early on when this was all happening, I'd say, do you know, do you want to be Blockbuster or do you want to be Netflix? And it really was a complete shift in the business model, right? And they're still holding on to that real estate and filling beds 
and um, and they really have to 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 make a monumental fundamental shift in their business model in to, order to embrace value based care. And so it's just a hard thing to do. So uh, we're in 2024. Regulations are still changing. Uh, ACOs certainly are growing. Uh, we have this 2030 objective. What do you think are some of the inhibitors to growth on an ACO front? Well, I just I think I just talked about the biggest one. It's just that business model shift from hospitals that dominate you know large marketplaces in this country. I do think some of the things that are helping is this shift to hospital at home, home care. You know, it's it's taking it's taking away from that need to to be in a bed in a hospital. Um, I think policy, you know, certainly. And there's a lot of, you know, think about the reason margins are so small in the hospitals is because of all the things that they have to pay for that are just egregiously high, higher than if it was more of a direct-to-consumer business, right? Right. And so the fact that it's not a direct-to-consumer business, it just falsely elevates every single cost along the way. And so there's some things called value-based purchasing that are hopefully coming in to bring more right size to cost of devices and and things that the hospitals use you know the staffing is a is a huge issue and and so i think because of that that might actually be a benefit to value based healthcare because hospitals and and healthcare organizations are struggling to get the staff to to keep you know everything running the way it has historically run so creative ways of virtual care virtual primary care you know the shift to home all of that is coming in and i think it all lends itself to this this movement of you will get better outcomes lower cost of care altogether you know if you embrace value based healthcare i think one of the other things is you've got ma and p for service kind of competing the fact that ma is 51% and what just 8 9 10 years ago was 18% of the patients in this country and it's higher it costs more it costs more than fee for service the whole point of ma was to be cheaper right and their argument to that is that well our patients are sicker well i would counter that with probably they've just been risk coded sicker because that's where you know ma has historically managed the revenue side versus the move the needle side and so i think as long as ma continues to grow i think some of these more creative um, models you know, around fee-for-service to moving to at-risk where providers are in charge, I think are not going to move as fast as, as if we go to more of the payer delegated risk models on the EMA side. But I'm hoping that these models converge and at the end of the day, we can call them all value-based healthcare. Yeah. And I, I'm, you talked about data, the use of data uh, earlier. I, I'm concerned. Uh, I was, when I asked about, you know, what uh, are some of the changes needed, I was thinking more from a regulatory perspective, but that said, uh, I, I'm sure uh, you know you've seen the numbers as well. There was a report out earlier this week that in 2024 there's going to there's a five percent growth in federal spending on healthcare. Right. That's uh, as well. You you also see there's more di- uh, people with diabetes today than yesterday. More people with uh, cardio problems today than yesterday. There, we're because I think because we don't have this unified strategy and everybody's embraced value that we're st- we're losing the the war if you will I hate to say it that way but we're losing the the battle in the context of the the true mantra of value based care increased quality of care uh, better outcomes reduce cost right well and and I think you know at the end of the day the whole point was to 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 make healthcare less a percent of the GDP than it was when we started right and that has just not happened so that right. means that 
you know, policies and, and all of these things that have gone into place has really moved the needle up. It's because we've rewarded risk coding, you know, on the ACO side, at least put a cap on it. On the MA side, there's been no cap, but we've been rewarding all these things that are, do we really have more ca cardiac patients? Do we really have more diabetics or just, are we really good at risk coding where we weren't in the past because we weren't incented to do it? And it's all of those things. But at the end of the day, percent of GDP, is higher than it was, and that is is not good. And and I'll throw that I think you know what I love seeing that's happening in healthcare is this um, push to engagement, food is medicine, lifestyle, all of this stuff. You know, get away from from just uh, diagnose and and prescribe, diagnose and operate, and let's get back to root cause healthcare. If we really want to make that shift in in you know better outcomes Absolutely. and lower costs, you got to go there. And you have to start looking at why people are getting sick and fix that. Yeah, I I had a guest on a couple of months ago. Uh, he's uh, he's a, he was a civil rights leader actually, and uh, he talked about the urban community. You know, doctor says, hey, you got to go on a diet. You got to lose some weight. But the but the neighborhood deli has 66 different flavors of beer, but they don't have apples and oranges, tomatoes and lettuce. Right. Right. So it so it's tough for me to get that. I want to, but access to are two different things, right? And I and I am absolutely with you. It's not about uh, taking that pill because the pill is a maintenance dose, of, in my opinion. Uh, and we need to. It, it doesn't have, cure anything. It's it doesn't cure it. That's that's right. what I meant by a yeah. maintenance dose. Yeah. So it doesn't cure anything. If, just because you have diabetes doesn't mean you have to die with it. Right. Okay. It's not about managing diabetes. It's about putting it in remission. There's a way different headset that you need in order to change behaviors. And you got to do it collectively. Right. I remember I hate to say this, but I, I, I was a wrestler in, in high school and I cut weight like there was no tomorrow. But when you have a family of eight sitting at the dinner table, which I always had to sit at and they're all eating. <laughs> and I'm not, and I'm having jello, <laughs> right? right? The point, the fun. point, yeah, it's not fun. But the point <laughs> is that a person with diabetes, they're on a diet. Everybody's got to be on a diet in that household. And, and, you know what, and we shouldn't even look at it as a diet, it's more of a lifestyle change. Yeah, you know? yeah, that's great I mean, point. it's really, point. It, it's the quality of our food. It's how we, the food we choose to eat. It's less processed, less fast food. It's really, it, you know, you should be able to eat as much as you want if you're eating the right stuff. And, you know, back to kind of, you know, change. I mean, even Alzheimer's right now is now being called diabetes three because they they believe that it's truly a lifestyle. You know, food is medicine type type of cure. And if we can just get and focus on that, we can. I mean, how many people are suffering from Alzheimer's, and how many more do we predict? It's huge if we can get back to root cause and and solve that. And back to your kind of the food desert issue. What's more health? What what is health equity? It's not really DEI and all the things that we're hearing. It's that. It's how do we make sure there is healthy food in every supermarket that is affordable for everybody? That's true health equity. And how Absolutely. do we, you know, and understanding that is is engagement, right? If we understand what people are struggling with at home in their neighborhoods and solve for that, that's the real engagement and come up with real solutions. And so, and and, and that's, you know, I think we get sidetracked with the buzzword of health equity and not really understand what it means to give everybody the same health equity. It's it's things like like that. Grassroots. Nicole, I'm going to have to leave it there. 
You just nailed it. I, I'm absolutely aligned with, with your thinking there. With that, I want to thank you again for uh, joining the program, and hopefully we'll have you on again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's today's shift. I appreciate the audience taking the time to tune in. If you missed part of today's episode, you can tune back in at the healthcarenowradio.com at the same time, 11 a.m. or 7 p.m. Eastern throughout the week. And be sure to check out the program page at thevirtualshift.co. As well, remember to follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter at FoleyTom, and follow the show's hashtag, The Virtual Shift. I'm Tom Foley. Until the next shift.